Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 80 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I just can't stop buying plants. How many you got? About a billion. Probably like 15. I just love their little green faces. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I just sat on a train next to Frankie Dottore. It's pretty good. And what did the woman on the train call him, Hannah? She called him that horse fella. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Jen Offord and I have been bitten. That is the lamest (laughs) fact we've ever had, Jen. Well, I'll tell you why it's not lame. Because it got completely out of control and I had to see a medical professional about it. And she said she thinks it's a spider bite. Yeah, that, I mean, that happens quite a lot. I've been bitten by a spider. Well, this is a brand new experience for me. Garden spiders. Yeah, cunts. <laughs> Later on, we're talking the wonder of foofs, fannies, lady gardens, the female pleasure palace, and why, whatever you call it, it deserves a permanent bricks and mortar home with Florence Schechter of the Vagina Museum, which is coming soon. We speak to writer and actor Caroline Burns-Cook about her one-woman show, Testament of Youther, and the 70s legend, Youther Joyce. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to track and field Paralympian Steph Reed about this weekend's anniversary games. And in Dunleavy Does Dystopia, the future is indeed very orange <laughs> as we watch Rollerball. Crikey. But first, marching, infighting, and what would George do? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Like Marina Hyde's less fewer joke, only better. And I fucking wish! It was golden. Well done, Marina Hyde, who always knocks it out of the park. But they've had to build a bigger park for her to knock it out of with that one. I've missed it, so please can you tell me what she said, Hannah? She said that Boris Johnson was the sort of man who would protest in order to see less of his children. Sorry, fewer. (laughs) So beautiful. And on to something else less beautiful. Brexit continues to loom over the country like a prick on the tube with no concept of personal space and a misplaced direction. Just a reminder that if you're not working or on holiday or stockpiling your bunker, there is a march against Brexit, the March for Change, in London on Saturday, July the 20th. That's this Saturday at 2pm. If you're coming from a strongly Remain area to avoid overcrowding on trains to be there by two, you'll need to make sure you're on a train by, say... Thursday. Marches are meeting at Park Lane and an enormous crowd is expected. Having been on two of these marches so far, it's worth saying they won't in and of themselves stop us crashing out of the EU with no deal, but you'll meet a lot of nice people and you can but try. eh? Also dogs, you meet a lot of nice dogs if that is a pull. You wondering what's been happening in the slow march to death of the Tory leadership contest? Um, All right, well, sorry, I'm going to tell you anyway. PM hopefuls Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt met again last week to wave their willies around on TV in the hope of convincing us that they're up to the task of holding the UK's highest public office. And that's the sound of us all sobbing that you can hear. So the bad news is the next Prime Minister is still going to be one of these two clowns. But the good news is Bojo's already given a pretty clear indication that he might quit within six months. So, you know, speaking during the debate on Tuesday night, the pair came to blow over Brexit again as Bojo branded Hunt defeatist for not giving a firm indication of when the UK would exit the European Union. Meanwhile, Johnson said he would quit as PM if he did not meet the current deadline of the 31st of October. Do we think he means quit in the same way that he meant £350 million? Who knows? But I'd have thought Jeremy Hunt, he's made it quite clear that he thinks the amount of time needed to make an important life-changing decision is 12 weeks, isn't it? Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, good point. Indeed, as the Tories continue to ponder the question of who they'd like to run the country, bumblefuck or fumblebuck, <laughs> Labour continues to not so much walk past a totally open goal as carry on into the coach park where they are currently having a very public and not at all edifying scrap about who is going to drive. The ongoing and increasingly upsetting row about anti-Semitism continues apace as the BBC aired a panorama last week as whistleblowers spoke about how Labour deals with such complaints. I'm not going to go into what it said. You can watch it. Or don't. That hasn't stopped most of Twitter having an opinion on it anyway. Despite a lot of claims it was all lies, a lot of whataboutery about the Tories, and some savagely inappropriate comments by Chief Sabre Rattler Owen Jones, perhaps the most telling thing about the effect of the documentary was that Jones and fellow renter cliché Aaron Bastani both missed media appointments the next day, Jones claiming he'd overslept, and the other pillock saying he'd missed a train. Perhaps they could have adopted Jeremy Corbyn's MO of putting a woman shouting in Spanish between him and the media. That's what, what's my go-to. <laughs> <laughs> I could go on about this horrific spectacle of watching Labour descend into madness, but I've not got the will. Get it the fuck together, stamp out anti-Semitism, and then get it the fuck together again. I will not vote for you when you behave like this. And I know I'm very much not alone in that. And the unpleasantness continues. I can only apologise to your ears, your hearts and your bowels because I am about to talk about Tommy Robinson, a.k.a. Stephen Yaxley-Lennon. The meat-faced jizz clown, co-founder of the English Defence League, failed MEP candidate and grade-A pipe was in the news again because, and can I get a hallelujah, he is back in prison. Fourth time lucky, eh, Tommy? Having live-streamed footage of defendants in a criminal trial and encouraged vigilante action against them, Robinson found himself convicted of contempt of court and sentenced to nine months in the slammer. Tapping into his grade-A pipe credentials, Robinson decided he'd actually been found, quote, guilty of journalism, which he proudly proclaimed on a T-shirt. If anyone was in any doubt at all, Robinson's amateurish breach of a reporting ban on a major sexual exploitation case involving 29 defendants at Leeds Crown Court last year is evidence enough that he is not, I repeat, not a bona fide journalist. It seems Tiny Tom isn't looking forward to his stint behind bars, claiming his life is endangered by, his words, jihadi gangs, and making him so frightened that he begged Donald Trump for asylum in the US. I'll just say that a little bit more clearly, then leave you to insert your own incredulous noises. Tommy Robinson, having lived his life campaigning against asylum seekers, sought asylum from a man, and I use that word very loosely, who was repeatedly threatened to build a wall to keep asylum seekers out of the USA. Yeah, best of British with that, Tommy, you shit pigeon. Business as usual for Donald Trump last week as he continued to piss off everyone. Well, in between retweeting conservative educational foundations wanging on about Hillary Clinton's emails. What about them though, eh? Seriously, those emails. Trump took to Twitter because, of course he did, to have a pop at UK ambassador to the US, Sir Kim Darroch. And fuck it, why not Theresa May while he's at it? after leaked emails in which Darak criticised Trump's regime emerged. Trump tweeted on Monday that Darak was a very stupid guy. <laughs> that was a bad impression, I'm sorry. I quite liked it. Thanks. And a pompous fool. In response to the emails in which the diplomat described Trump's administration as clumsy and inept. And also, at the same time, he branded Theresa May's Brexit negotiations as foolish. Still, at least we agree on something, eh, Donald? 
The situation escalated after aforementioned Tory leadership hopeful Boris Johnson failed to back Darroch when questioned during Tuesday's televised debate, with Darroch resigning on Wednesday, resulting in widespread criticism of the former foreign secretary. Which is just like China off a bull's back, isn't it? Criticism of Bojo... Europe Minister Sir Alan Duncan lamented what he called contemptible negligence, adding that Johnson had basically thrown this fantastic diplomat under a bus to serve his own personal interests, which is surprising for Boris, isn't it? Presumably a bus with, hey guys, I'm going to say it again, £350 million written on the side of it. Is it a bus he'd made out of a wine crate? With happy people on it. <laughs> now, speaking of which, I was in my local shop and it had, do you remember those old fairy bottles? The big white round ones? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it had those? Like, they don't make them anymore, but they must be doing some special edition ones. And I bought it, and it's finally run out, and I have an overwhelming desire to make a rocket out of it. Do it. (laughs) Now, here's something that never happens. I'm almost at a loss for words. As to the past few days in America, human beings sleeping on concrete floors in cages while a president tweets that four non-white female politicians, three of whom were actually born in the US, should go back to their own countries. And I cannot stress enough how much that second one actually happened. But let's go instead to the case of Jeffrey Epstein, a mega rich sex offender with links to celebrities, world leaders. I think we can guess which one that is. Business people and royalty. The the phrase mega rich sex offender, I'm really hoping that's on his LinkedIn profile. (laughs) Complex and fast moving as this story is, all credit for it goes to Julie K. Brown of the Miami Herald, who questioned why Epstein hadn't been investigated further at the time of his original conviction in 2008, or indeed why he spent so little time, just 13 months, in prison. And why in the name of good God fuck no one else was reporting on it? Turns out, bitter laugh, he'd struck a sweetheart deal, technically a non-prosecution agreement, with the then top federal prosecutor in Miami, Alexandra Costa, who gave Epstein and his co-conspirators immunity from prosecution. Acosta, by the way, was Trump's Labour secretary until resigning last week. Who, I ask, is going to be responsible for tackling sex trafficking now? Hmm. You can believe it, that was actually part of his job. Talking of sex trafficking, that's the charge Epstein is now facing after Brown's investigation found up to 80 potential victims, some as young as 13, have been provided to his friends and acquaintances for sex. At a bail hearing on Friday, the prosecution alleged he'd paid two co-conspirators considerable sums of money after Brown's story first appeared in the Herald. So maybe add witness tampering charges to that. Someone give that woman the Pulitzer. Yep. And while we're on this subject, I'd like to chip in with an observation that has left me furious. In many of the reports that followed Julie K. Brown's excellent investigative piece, the phrase faces allegations of having sex with underage women has cropped up time and again. It's misleading and dangerous. There's a word for underage women, and that word is girl. And do you know what girls are? They're children. And do you know what children can't do? Have sex. The phrase these outlets, which included Fox News and the New York Times, is looking for is actually faces allegations that he raped children. Because in no world is a 14-year-old girl an underage woman. But then, that's not quite so palatable, is it? It makes it a bit trickier for Epstein's high-profile cronies to wash their hands of it all. Enough with the whitewashing that comes from using so-called polite words to describe acts of coercion, intimidation, manipulation and abuse. So you remember last week when I talked about the George Osborne method of dealing with self-doubt, WWGD. 
Yeah, well, it turns out around one in eight members of the adult male population must have tuned in to heed my words, which is probably what George would think too. In a poll by YouGov last week, when asked, do you think if you were playing your very best tennis, you could win a point <laughs> off Serena Williams? A whopping 7% of those surveyed said yes, they thought they could. That's right. Just for the avoidance of doubt, we are talking about 23 times Grand Slam winner Serena Williams. But let's see that figure broken down by gender. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, only 3% of the women surveyed were deluded enough about their own levels of competence to think they could achieve this, compared to the 12% of the men surveyed. Biggest twats, perhaps unsurprisingly, if you want a bit more information about this, are in London, 10% of the Londoners surveyed thought they could win a point and 9% of generic The North thought they could. <laughs> I love that. They're just the generic The North. Poor old Scotland. Just 4% of them believe they could take a point off Serena Williams. So they need to be thinking more like George Osborne, clearly. Props to the 2% of the over 65s who thought they could manage the job. I hope they were really, really over 65. Oh. Like 95. Yeah, I'll have a go. Yeah, Why not? A shot. It may kill me, but I'll try my best. <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> One more tiny sliver of Trump madness, which happened at possibly the weirdest social media summit in history. The tiny-handed goof-fuck announced that he'd seen Arnold Schwarzenegger's death. Big movie star, Trump said. Well, you know what? He died. He died. I was there. Now then. Dunleavy does dystopia favourite Big Arnie Schwartz is still alive and kicking. And he tweeted, consider the dad a divorce. No, he didn't. He didn't tweet that. What he actually said was, I am still here. I want to compare tax returns, Donald. So, I mean, I don't know where he's from. He's moved around a bit. Oh, please, for the day when Trump accepts Arnie's invitation to step outside. It turns out that Trump was referring to Schwarzenegger's stint on TV show The Apprentice rather than a slow-mo descent into boiling metal. But even that only takes Trump's idiot points down to, what, like a Googleplex? Now then, does anyone want some good news? Yes. Mm -hmm, Please. Well, after Sexism of the Week, you can hear me chatting to Alliance for Choices, Daniel, about the incredible, game-changing moment last week when MPs resoundingly backed the right to abortion and same-sex marriage in Northern Ireland. Finally! Danielle's going to tell us what happens next, because, of course, it isn't straightforward. But let's not piss on the parade just yet. Stella Creasy's amendment being voted through was a definite win for women's rights. Huzzah! Yay! Yay. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we head over to a game that I thought was mostly about balls being in or out, but turns out it's actually about tits. What a fool I am. A big thank you then to Simona Halep, who beat Serena Williams in straight sets to take the Wimbledon title for having tits. Because that's the main takeout from that story of phenomenal sporting achievement, right? Well, the Sunday Times certainly thought so, making Halep's breast reduction 10 years ago a decent-sized story in the main section of the paper, with a photo of her pre-op. Journalist Tony Allen Mills was quick to jump to his own defence, pointing out there was plenty more coverage of Halep's win in the sports pages. Oh, well, that's okay then. As long as there's an article where the focus isn't on her tits, it's good to have some that is. Because otherwise, we might forget she had tits at all. And then where would we be? Concentrating on her incredible ability as an athlete? We cannot have that, right? Fuck off. Exactly. And to make sure that priorities stay straight, I am suggesting that we rename Women's Wimbledon Championship to Wimbledon Tits. And the men's competition is going to be Wimbledon. 
Tony, I am eagerly awaiting your lead story about how Novak Djokovic doesn't let his low-hanging meat clackers get in the way of a Grand Slam win. Oh, wait, no, Wimbledon. Hey, Hannah, what are you doing on Sunday, the 21st of July? I am going to be in the fair city of Canterbury. Canterbury? I know, all the way in Kent. We will be holding an in-conversation event at the Marlowe Theatre as part of Canterbury Comedy Festival, and we have some great guests. Too right we do. We've got Kemar Bob, and we've got the Scummy Mummies. If you want to find out more, go to our website, www.standardissuepodcast.com. And we can promise you that you may well laugh your tits off. Thunk. <laughs> hello, as promised, I'm joined on the phone by Danielle from Alliance for Choice. Danielle, hello. Hello. So, there was an incredible game-changing moment last week when MPs resoundingly backed the right to abortion and same-sex marriage in Northern Ireland. Finally! How are you feeling? We're just sort of in the middle of it now. Yeah, so last week the MPs voted overwhelmingly, like it was massive majorities to extend same-sex marriage and reform abortion law. But we still have a few uh, conditions that need to be met. So it needs to get through the House of Lords first. So today is Monday, and the House of Lords are having their committee stage today where they scrutinise the bill and suggest any amendments. Then they'll be voting on Wednesday, and then any changes, provided it passes in the House of Lords, any changes then have to go back to the House of Commons. So if it passes through the House of Commons then we will get changed, provided that Stormont doesn't return by October 21st. I was going to say, it is definitely a win, but it's not as straightforward as all women in Northern Ireland having access to free, safe, legal abortion right now, is it? What happens next? Well, then it would be um, the legislation would need to be made. It wouldn't be October 21st either. It would be the, the binding measure that's put on Parliament then is they have to create regulations or legislation on the issues after the 21st of October. So we could be looking at consultation periods, we could be looking at you know, drafting the, the actual bills. So it's not going to be automatic, but it, it, it is massive and the House of Lords hopefully will be passing it through and then the Commons. So we hopefully will see action, but we could be potentially looking at this time of year having have an abortion access in Northern Ireland. We did have abortion access here and we do have abortion access here in limited circumstances. So there are doctors who are trained to do it. There is regulations in place already where the dozen or so legal abortions have happened, which is only where the there's a risk of life or serious risk of health. Yeah. So um there are like it has we have already had abortions here in the NHS and in a private clinic. So hopefully the actual provision won't be too hard to get up and running. We're talking about say probably about thirty people a week. Um, we know that there's around you know there's over twenty that travel um to England at the minute for funded abortion care, and we know that there's there's people using safe legal abortion pills for women on web and women help women as well at uh, risking up life in prison. So we're we're probably talking about thirty people. So it's not going to be a massive service provision that needs to be put in place so hopefully you know even being realistic hopefully this time next year we could see actual free safe legal local access that's incredible the dup and a few others are making noises that the amendments breached devolution but do you still feel positive over in northern ireland we don't think it does breach devolution because um cedar so the un committee 
has repeatedly called on the UK government to act. The UK government is the body that's responsible for international human rights obligations, and CEDAW have told them devolution isn't a barrier. So we think Westminster is actually the body that is ultimately responsible for for this human rights obligation, so it's their duty to act. Stormont would have the power to act under criminal justice devolution, so not because it's healthcare, but because it's a criminal justice matter, which is, you know, a, a court of Northern Ireland. So while Stormont has the power to act, Westminster does as well, and Westminster has, a, has an international human rights obligation to act. So we we have been calling on Westminster to act, and we think it's, it's right that they do. Yeah, and of course they've acted on other stuff as well. They've put through two budgets. It's not the first time Westminster have acted. Yeah, they have. Uh, they've already passed legislation. We, we haven't had a local government here for over two and a half years. So they've passed legislation already to sort of keep things ticking over. So on the budget, they passed money laundering regulations, I think, as well, and also uh, related to RHI. So it's not that nothing has been passed in Westminster. So even if government was abandoned, Westminster would still have the party act as the body responsible for international human rights obligations. Mm-hmm. And also Parliament remains sovereign over devolved governments. It doesn't exercise that very often, which is right, because that's why we have devolution. But they still have the, the competency to legislate. So it's all looking pretty good. Are you feeling pretty positive? Yeah, the next few days really are key for if we see action by the 21st of October. And then, of course, if the storm parties do agree at the talks and come back before 21st of October, then it'll be put back on Stormont to legislate anyway. So nothing is certain. And I think we're as, as close as we've ever been to seeing change. But we've kind of seen it a few times before and then had it taken out of our grasp. So, um, so yes, very positive, but I'm not counting my chickens. And what can we still do? If it's back in the Commons on Thursday then we need everybody to email their MPs on Wednesday night to tell them to turn up and stand up for human rights. So that's something that people can do anywhere in the UK where they have an MP is write to their MP and tell them to support abortion law reform and also the extension of same-sex marriage. Keep an eye on our Twitter for any calls to action on our Facebook with all four choices, the number four, on Twitter and Instagram and then we're Alliance for Choice on Facebook. So any calls for action we'll put on there. And then also keep an eye for the court cases coming in November for developments on that. So we have, uh, there's a woman who I've spoken about to you before who um, got pills for her teenage daughter who was in an abusive relationship. And she is facing a criminal trial in November. Whether this vote in Westminster will change anything, we don't know yet. And then, of course, you can support our work by, well, following and sharing what we have to say. And then we'll have a load of merch on our website. So we've got T-shirts and jumpers and badges that all the money will know go back into helping us campaign for the decriminalisation of abortion in Northern Ireland. I can heartily recommend the sweater and the badges because I've got them and they're cracking. Yeah, we have a few new designs as well, but uh, we've got some cheeky ones and some not so cheeky ones. So you can take your pick, um, depending on how, how uh, out there you're, you're willing to go. 
Awesome. Danielle, thank you as ever for chatting to me. And obviously we've got everything crossed that this goes through. Thanks very much for having me on. Hello, the three of us. That's right. The trio. The three musketeers. I want to be pathos. Pathos is not I know that's not how it was pronounced, but... Can I be Aramis the Hot Spaniel? (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with the Hot Spaniel and pathos. (laughs) And also, we are joined by Florence Schechter. And the reason being that Florence is well on her way to making a vagina museum. The vagina museum, in fact. Florence, hello. Please tell us more. (laughs) Hello. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so about two and a half years ago, I discovered that there is a penis museum in Iceland, which is, like, pretty cool. But there's no vagina equivalent anywhere in the world. And it started off really flippantly. I was like, oh, my God. I was just on Twitter. I was like, oh, my God, guys. There's a penis museum. There's a vagina museum. We should, like, totally make one. That is a great Um, penis voice. I liked it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, (laughs) that is my penis voice. That's I imagine every penis has that voice. And then I thought about it, and I was like, oh, no, that's actually... A really good idea, if I say so myself. I'm going to actually do that. And we 100% wanted to be trans-inclusive. And yeah, here I am, two and a half years later. So how far down the process are we in having a bricks and mortar vagina museum? So you have caught me at a really interesting time, actually. I know, it's exciting. (laughs) Um, Because uh, we've been doing like pop-ups and things all over the UK. What happened was I got in contact with my local councillor, because I live in Camden, and I was like, here's a thing I'm doing. Do you think that would be cool? And she works for the National Childbirth Trust, so she was like... Oh my god! Yes, normally like emails sit in our council inbox for like years before we get around to <laughs> dealing with just them. blowing dust off an email. But she was like, "Yes, I have to make this happen." So she put me in contact with the landlords of Camden Market, who have offered us a space. Um, and all the info about what's going to be happening is going to go out in next month in August. But kind of the sneak preview that I'll let you in on today is that we're going to officially open in mid-November where we'll have like an exhibition, we're going to have a shop and everything. But we're going to have like a pre-opening program from mid-September where you can come and see some events, you can kind of get a bit of a sneak preview. But there won't be an exhibition. Okay. So what kind of events are you going to be throwing in a vagina museum? Sorry, the vagina museum. (laughs) Oh, everything. Like plays, comedy, music, dance, workshops, classes, like everything you could possibly imagine. Will they all be vagina themed? So the exhibitions are all going to be very, very vagina focused or gynecologically focused because it's like not just the vagina, it's the uterus, the ovaries, the cervix, the vulva, everything. But the events can be anything kind of tangentially related. I'm a bit broader scope. So it might be related to women or the LGBT community or sex or health or anything like that. Kind of as long as vaginas are somewhere involved. So the whole shebang, which uh, coincidentally is what I actually call my vagina. (laughs) So the shebang hole, surely. The shebang hole, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I like to reverse it. (laughs) But that's a different story. So according to research gathered by the campaign from the Eve Appeal, 65% of 16 to 25-year-olds struggle to use the words vagina or vulva, and more than one in 10 of 16 to 35-year-olds have said they found it difficult to talk to their GPs about gynaecological health concerns. Do you think people are getting less coy when it comes to talking about things vulva, vagina, or do you think that is an ongoing concern? I think there is a general trend to being more comfortable with talking about the subject, but that's not necessarily true in every community. And even in places where you'd think like, oh, they must be really liberal, like young women, for example. Actually, a lot of young women today still have massive difficulty because they're getting 
you know, shame and stigma from all parts of their life, not just from their, you know, with their girlfriends. They've got their parents to deal with, the religion they're in, the country they're in. You know, like, I have friends who struggle to say the word vulva, and I'm like, their best friend is making a vagina music. <laughs> <laughs> Do they not talk about you, though? We don't talk about Oh, words. no, oh, they love it, actually, because when they heard I was doing this, they were like, oh, that's so Florence. <laughs> like if anyone was going to do it it was going to be me so I think there's a general trend but I don't know if that trend is always the case everywhere I'm guessing that part of the Vagina Museum's reason to exist is to help those conversations yeah 100% I mean the reason I'm doing this is to destigmatize the gynecological anatomy that's the ultimate goal of this and the reason I'm doing that in the form of a museum is because museums are used by societies to flagpost what they think is important so like we have you know the Tate Modern which has all the important artists we think are important in Cornwall they've got the National Mining Museum because that's a really important industry there so the fact that there's no vagina museum in the world I think really says something about what our societies think about vaginas and the world is changing I think 100% there is like a fourth wave of feminism happening at the moment and this is us as a society coming together and saying hey this is something we now value and that is a huge part of destigmatizing the anatomy. I'm so shocked that the Dutch haven't gone in there first. I thought maybe there would be something in Amsterdam that would yeah almost certainly. There's a museum of menstruation being set up in Amsterdam although it's by a Swedish woman. And there's a sex museum, isn't there? I think. Yeah, there's a museum of sex, museum of prostitution. It's a lot of places. Museum of that, all those drawings with the guys with the huge cocks. Mm. What's he called? Something Tom. Tom. Big, yeah. big Tom. <laughs> Have you kn- no? There's a there's an artist. He's called something like big, like Big Tom, but it's not. <laughs> and he just draws pictures big of people Tom, with the cock huge sure. cocks. Wow. Oh. I spent a lot of time in Amsterdam. <laughs> Like graffiti or a museum? Or no, it's like a, a museum. Is it in the sex museum? Or is it its own museum of cock sure drawings? I'm it's its own museum. People are going to start emailing you with mm. pictures of big cocks being like, I know who the artist is. <laughs> yeah. And we'll be like, yeah, you totally solicited this, mate. <laughs> you brought this on yourself. I'm sorry. <laughs> what has the reaction been when you've been telling people about setting up or wanting to set up the Vagina Museum? Have you been surprised by people's thoughts? There's been a few different reactions, and I've been doing this for, you know, a while now, so I've been collecting them into different categories. And when it comes from my family and friends, they're almost always like, oh, that's, that's so you. But when it's coming from people who don't know me, I find it falls into a few different categories. So there are some people who are like, yes, that sounds amazing. I can't believe there isn't already one. There are some people who are like, that sounds really interesting, but I have no idea what it would contain. Because, like, the th- having to think about vaginas is like so alien to them. They're like, it sounds great, but I I just have no frame of reference. Then there are the people who don't like it. So those are the people who like it. And then there are people who don't like it. There's the morality brigade, as I call them. And they're the people who are like, oh, privates should be kept private. And you're such a pervert and you're gross and whatever. And uh, they're quite easy to bring around. Like there was this one woman who told me, an older woman, who was, she came up with that phrase, privates should be kept private. And I said, well, hold on a minute. How many babies do you have? How many children have you had? And she was like, oh, I've had three children. And I was like, did you push them out of your vagina? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, aren't you proud of that? Isn't that fucking awesome? And she was like, yes. Yes, it is, actually. <laughs> and then there's the trolls who just use it as an opportunity to make a joke, which actually I don't mind so much. Like, everyone tries to make the joke oh, there's already a vagina museum. It's called, insert 
group of people I don't like. Houses of Parliament, the Republican Party, yeah. <laughs> la la la. To combat this, I wrote a tweet which was like, stop comparing us to Parliament, we're actually useful. Hey. <laughs> and when I would send that to trolls, they were like, oh, they're in on the joke. And then suddenly they were friends. And I've actually gained followers who used to be trolls with that tactic. Amazing. Um, which is so much fun. Just going back to the stigma surrounding vaginas and vulvas, do you think that some of the, the morality police that you, you've mentioned, it's because they're always sexualized because women tend to always mm. be sexualized? Oh, yeah. That's one really big part of it, definitely. Because the only time you would see a vulva, I think is during sex or watching porn. Because like, if you look at textbooks, for example, you get to see like the outside of penis and all that stuff. But when you see diagrams of the gynecological anatomy, it's always like the uterus and it's like a cross-section. You never see an actual vulva and you don't learn about the anatomy. So yeah, there's no connection between it just being a normal part of the body. It's always sex, sex, sex. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is why women are um, a bit... I don't know. I'm sure men have insecurities about their penises, so I'm probably chatting <laughs> shit here. But I think women uh, women don't really know what's normal. Like yeah. Women don't understand there's like variety and whatever. And mm. things we had don't this look conversation the same. with Bella Heeson, didn't we? Exactly. Because in truth, women don't, don't see, see each other's yeah. bits and pieces internal. as much as men do. Yeah. yeah. I think there's also the added layer of the reason that people with penises have such shame is because they want to be big so they can like pleasure their partners. But with, you know those myths like, oh, if you have really long labia, it means you're a slut. And like, oh, you have to be shaved or you're ugly and you're disgusting and it has to smell this certain way. Yeah. There's like this added layer of like shame and disgust to do with your sexual promiscuity that I think like penises don't have that same connotations. So like we both have genital shame, but it's just like the vulva has this extra. I have been on a mission to find a, like a positive word to describe the anatomy like the vulva because everything... Every word in English is horrible or infantilizing or gross or whatever. If you want shebang hole, you can have it. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I thought it was Cave of Wonders, Mick. That's quite awesome. Cave of Wonders Wonders is what I do, actually. But I don't don't know how often that's used. Like, is anyone like, hey, can I see your Cave of Wonders? Mick uses it literally Mm. all the time. Pretty much every podcast. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Well, I found in Italian, if you want to describe something as cool, you call it fika, which means vagina. So you're like, hey, your jacket is really fika. (laughs) <laughs> and you're like, hey, your jacket's really vagina. It's like a compliment. Like, they, they also, in um, in the south of Italy, they use the word penis um, or cock similarly. Like, mm. minke, my minke, my cock. If they find something, particularly it's with women, but, you know, if they think something's very cool, they will, like, grab their groin and go, ma minke. And I presume <laughs> that means it gives me the horn or whatever. Uh. I, I love it. Wowzers. Yep. Wow. They ma minke. <laughs> ma minke. But talking of names, Mm. why the Vagina Museum, not the Vulva Museum? That's a very good question. Quick anatomy lesson. The vulva is only the external bit. It's like the labia, the clitoris, the opening to the vagina. And we're going to be a museum about the whole thing, about, you know, the uterus and the ovaries, all the way to the clitoris and everything in between. So if we wanted to be accurate, it would be called the gynecological museum, which sounds super gross. Or we could be called like the reproductive museum, but like, again... I very rarely use my bits for reproduction. Um, so there's like no really good word. I mean, because really the only word we have in English, which isn't overly medical or focuses only on one bit, is the word, can I, how, how much can I swear? You Whatever can swear you like. Oh, okay, so is the word cunt. 
cunt is the only word that we have that describes absolutely everything. And you couldn't have had a cunt museum. The Charity Commission would never let me. So we went with vagina over vulva because those are the two options because a lot of a lot more people know the word vagina. Very few people know the word vulva. It's really, really rare mm-hmm. to actually know that word. And sometimes people use the argument with me that like, oh, wouldn't this be a good way to teach them? But the way that the human brain works is that if you see something you don't recognise or you're not familiar with, we tend to ignore it. Like if you saw it on your Twitter feed and you didn't know the word vulva, you would just scroll past. But they would know the word vagina. So they're like, oh my God, what's the vagina museum? I have to go visit that. And then once they're in the door, then we can be like, hey, did you know it's called a vulva? Are you having a door? Maybe some flaps? (laughs) Um, A swing door? Yes. Like a saloon? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, our doors are going to be a bit boring. I think that would be really fun, and I might put it up temporarily, but um, maybe not permanently. I might put a few people on. Fair enough. So, Florence, where can people find out more about the Vagina Museum? Are you still crowdfunded? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Please send me all your money. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, so you can find us on vaginamuseum.co.uk. We're on Twitter and Instagram at vagina underscore museum. On Facebook, though, we're facebook.com forward slash vmuseum because Facebook was like, vagina's a naughty word and you can't have it in your URL. It's really not, though, is it? It's like literally a part of the female anatomy. Yeah, but they they don't allow people to put photographs of people breastfeeding yeah. on Facebook. And then if you want to donate, if you go to our website, vaginamuseum.co.uk forward slash support, and there's like a nice little donate button. Awesome. And where can people find you on Twitter, please, Florence? Well, I'm at Flo Schachter. It's F-L-O-S-C-H-E-C-H-T-E-R. There you go. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Oh, thank you for having me. We are having tea and biscuits in the studio with writer and actor Caroline Burns Cook. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Whose one woman show, Testament of Youtha, is about to head up to the Edinburgh Fringe. I've got to say, 10 out of 10 for that name. You know, you're the first person, and I love the title. It's brilliant. And no one said, oh, that's really funny. I think yeah. people not know Testament of Youth, because quite frankly, mm-hmm. some people don't know Youther. Well, there you go of then. Of course. But, For you those know. people who don't know who Youther <laughs> Joyce is, she is the subject of your play. Yeah. So can you give us a sort of potted history of who Youther Joyce is? To most people, she's just known as this fantastic character, this kind of slightly sexy but harrowed and kind of frustrated housewife with her husband George who's this very henpecked guy in Man About the House which was a marginally risque series at the time because it was about two girls and a boy sharing a flat and they were the landlords ran for I think um, seven series or something and massive hit and then they took the characters of Georgia Mildred that was youth from Brian Murphy and put them into the series Georgia Mildred which ran for six series it was quite unusual that they was so popular they made their own series. So that's what she's known for. And in that way, she's really beloved, but she's an awful lot more interesting than that. And I shouldn't say it's not the jolly thing that you're going to want to experience, because it is funny. Yeah. But to me, the dark is what's important. My first two solo shows are so dark. People said, do something light. Why don't you do youth? I thought, yeah, I'll do youth. I've found the darkness. Yeah. The darkness has come out, and there is a lot of humour yeah. in it. I mean, basically, and it sounds dreadfully pessimistic but that 10 years of her life when she was famous was the 10 years she drank herself to death with yeah brandy. literally 10 years a- worth and of brandy. secretly drank herself to totally death totally really. secretly i did look at some research which was just literally a book that had been written by a fan so it wasn't like an academic book it was just what she did in her life and that was interesting for me but what was really interesting is number one nobody had a bad word to say about her she was just smiling lovely wonderful now some people might have been being discreet i think one person said they knew that she was drinking 
or she, that she might have had a, been drinking a little bit too much. But yeah. in that sense, not that she was drinking a bottle of brandy a day and killed herself. Doing some research on this, I watched some George and Mildred online, obviously. Mm. God, my job's weird. And, um, <laughs> so is mine. And then I saw an interview with her ex-husband, and he said mm. that he was worried about her drinking. But I do wonder whether that's something that he applied with hindsight rather than he felt like he knew it at the time. That's the that thing. And I do think maybe one or two people, I'm sure they would be aware. But, you know, from my own background, I mean, I, I didn't really intend to say this, but I gave up drinking 20 years ago. And I come from an Irish Catholic background. Nobody thought I had a problem with drinking at all, yeah. <laughs> even though I was drinking a lot. And it was like, I knew for me I was drinking too much. I decided to knock it on the head completely. But no one was saying, oh, God, it was like, it was kind of, really, was it that bad? Couldn't you just have it? It's like, no, 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 it was much worse than it looked. Yeah. And it's like, if you come from that background where everyone's drinking, plus I was a lot younger and young people drink a lot more. And I think it was a similar thing. They would rehearse, then go down to the bar. They were rehearsing in a pub and... Drinking was a massive part of all their lives. And when you're in that life, it's often very difficult to see that maybe something else is going on. And for those last, not the entire 10 years, but she was single. You know, she did have a couple of relationships after Glyn, her first husband, her only husband. She'd yeah. been married once. And it's like, yeah, I thought she looked a bit thin or I was a bit worried. But nothing, It was. A, I think it was a different climate. I mean, nowadays, of course, somebody would have, you know, an agent or somebody would have put her in rehab. There's always the thing that people don't want to badmouth anyone because she was incredibly popular with her friends. She was very loving. And to be honest, I suppose the only reason I, although she was a fascinating character and a very strong woman, or she was playing in yeah. a way a strong woman, although she was still the kind of rejected wife. So it was still quite a sort of stereotypical role, the sort of sexy woman that the hempacked husband isn't interested in. And, you know, not that, but she came over as very strong and very powerful i think that's interesting because when i was like i say doing some research and re-watching this stuff because i did know who she was before mm. she reminds me in a lot of ways of hattie jakes in yeah. that she was allowed to be sexy despite not fitting a, a societal idea of what sexy should be i think that's one of the most interesting things i've found basically nobody would say anything about her and she said nothing about herself there's a couple of later interviews and the rest was like what on earth i've decided i've committed to doing this yeah i'm i'm interested enough to do this and everyone was so excited that i was doing use the choice because <laughs> she's so popular and all my other stuff is like grim yeah but um i thought there's nothing here except the alcohol yeah but there's also that absolute sexiness, and there's a bit that I write about that how... And again, it's like it's a controversial getting thing you're getting into, but as soon as feminism and the pill came about, suddenly everyone's allowed to shed their clothes and become a sexy starlet. Good roles, go. Because the good roles for women were the Betty Davises and you know the lawyers and the reporters. Yeah. Now suddenly you want to be Barbara Windsor. You know, nobody wants to look at your tits, she says in the play. She said, if they don't want to look at them... You're dead. You know, you're finished. She was allowed to be absolutely, yes, yeah. yeah, sexy. And I talk about ugly beautiful. It's a phrase in France that I love, that we don't have the ugly beautiful. And they have so many film stars that Like Willem Dafoe. Absolutely. That. And she suffered because of it. But on the other hand, you're right. She was... I remember the reason I did it in the first place. About 20 years ago, we were talking about Hattie Jakes and people, and everyone was doing all the carry-on ones, etc., yeah. etc. Et and I was saying, oh, well, I couldn't, you know, I can't really do anyone except, you know, Joyce Grenfell. <laughs> and, of course, I said, she's been done. You know, yeah. Maureen Lippman had done her by then. And my friend Saluka do youth of Joyce. Now, I know he was being rude. Because he meant, because you've got a bit of a big nose and big teeth. I, I, can, I can tell you that he really? was because he was that kind of person. But the point is, it was like, oh, right, OK. But 
then I realised that she's actually, she is sexy. Yeah. She's very sexy and she talks about it and that men were fascinated by that almost Thatcherite. I hate to say Thatcherite, the funny thing was I've just come out of rehearsal and I have the wig and everything, but I wasn't wearing the, the youth address, I was wearing something else. And my director said, you just like Thatcher. And really? it's like, that's interesting, because this is when she was around, the yeah. fag end of the 70s, as she describes it. Not quite 80s. But anyway, yeah, it's this sort of powerful, quite ugly woman who's incredibly sexy. Yeah. She was. Everyone and I have to say, her, her I wouldn't say it's her timing, it's her delivery. It's just extraordinary. There's, oh. a, there's a bit I was watching, Jim, where... Um, Obviously, a man about the house. There's a men sharing house with some women, and, yeah. and George doesn't like this. <laughs> and he says, "And he said, what's going on here then?" And somebody said, "What's her name from the Railway Children?" Oh, Sally Thompson. Sally Thompson yeah. says, uh, "It's just platonic." And he said, "I don't even know what that means." And Uther Joyce says, "It means like you and me, George." <laughs> <laughs> it's just the delivery. It's just extraordinary. Oh, fantastic. So great. Fantastic. And that's why. Well, the characters were so popular that they got the spin-off, obviously. But they said that the writers very soon began to use their timing and, their, and what they were bringing to it. Because they'd worked together before. Because yeah. that's the thing about it. It's, it's just the Georgia Mildred thing. But she was mainly at Stratford East with Joan Littlewood. And that's what's fascinating for me. All that, that whole period of 50s, 60s working class actors... Even though the irony was that some of them were very middle class and just didn't tell, tell Joan. There's <laughs> lots of really fun things that you discover. And Joan would go around saying, oh, you're middle class twat and stuff to people. <laughs> she says at one point, I could have been a contender. She did the most amazing cameo in the film The Pumpkin Eater with Anne Bancroft and Peter Finch. And it's written by Pinter. And it's just one scene. It's just amazing. It's like the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. I kept thinking, I must watch that because obviously that's very important now she did other films as well but you know and she was she's stunning stunning actress and then she got into doing what she did and could not get out of it how easy has she been to inhabit as a character it's really getting there now because I've got my first preview next Sunday and it really is I love the way the director sort of taken the script and kind of ripped it about in a way and made us show a lot of the scenes not just tell because I think sometimes with these autobiographical things it's all like just telling the audience what happened yeah and that's not theatre to me <laughs> you know really I mean it can be but I, I prefer so there's all these scenes she's doing and I was very focused on sh- telling the stories through some song like I used some of the songs from the theatre royal but changed the words to tell a bit more of the song so it's kind of a different way of storytelling yeah. in a way which is great and it's all very physical and very hot and sweaty like I am now <laughs> just having got on the old northern line and I thought well she's going to come when I relax and relaxing is not my you can probably tell I'm yeah. not very good at relaxing <laughs> uh, so now that I know the, the movements and the yeah. words she's really taking over she's really taking over and I've really fallen in love with her which I was I always do my god I played Myra Hindley once I wouldn't say I fell in love with her but you have to you know to me you have to you yeah have to, to, to know them to care about them no matter who they are but I do really, really love her. She suffered badly with her nerves, which I do. She had the massive drink problem, which I don't anymore, but did. <laughs> and she was lonely at the end of her life, actually. I think, I think a lot of that is the problem. Actually, that's not what you asked me, but that's the problem. Yeah. At the end, people didn't know. She just turned up for work. Didn't have a partner living with her. She did have two big relationships after Glyn, her husband. So she wasn't alone all her life. But the last few years... She was probably just drinking and smoking full stop and working, working her backside off. It was so pressurised. They toured all the time. I just thought it was just doing the series. 
but it's not. You film the series, you do summer seasons, you do touring, and they did public appearances, like more than the royalty. I mean, it was just staggering the amount of work they were doing. So it was like being a rock star, as you say. It was like, oh have a little bit more cocaine, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Although nobody was telling her to do it. I think she was just fueling herself on mm. black coffee cigarettes. And I guess if she's nervous as well, it's, you know, it's quite yeah. daunting. Terrible nerves. And well, celebrity was, terrible nerves, was yeah. quite a new thing still yeah. then, like yeah. sort of the 60s, 70s, how you, how you dealt with it. Yeah. People didn't know. George Best, isn't it? Yeah. That it was the fame. He, could, he was actually like a really, really shy man and he couldn't go to a party and... Not get shit faced because he couldn't handle being in the yeah. situation. I think that's that's very common. I mean, nobody. I can't imagine what <laughs> I can't imagine what phones like. I certainly can't. But <laughs> can any of us? <laughs> Never know Edinburgh. <laughs> that place that always makes you famous. What a joke! <laughs> but genuinely, I I can't imagine anything worse than being famous. And luckily, I haven't been tainted with that horror yet in my life. Because it, I mean, it must be devastating. So tell us, Caroline, <laughs> where can people see Testament of Youth? Oh. You've got some previews, and you're going to Edinburgh. I have. Um, basically, I've, the first preview is on. There is one in the Rialto in Brighton on the 16th. The others are Morecambe and York for our northern contingent. Yeah, yeah. But it's lovely, the Morecambe Festival. I, I, my friend of mine runs that and it's a lovely festival. York is going to be great because it's literally like the weekend I go to Edinburgh. So I'm going to do it all in one go, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, and Edinburgh then, of course, is the, the lovely Gilded Balloon, my favourite venue. It's the, uh, the Teviot, the main building yeah. and it's in the turret the little one upstairs oh nice i know it's lovely it i've done is. my last two solo shows there i love the turret but uh, yeah a little 50 seater up there so that would be from early i think it's the, the wednesday the 30th of july till the very end which i think is the 26th mm. and i've got two mondays off and yes i'm knackered just yeah. thinking <laughs> i'm knackered for you <laughs> oh good luck with that and thank, thank you, you very so much, much for coming in no thank you so much for asking me it's been lovely <laughs> You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined over the phone by athlete Stephanie Reed. So, Steph, with your help, I would like to take the listeners on a journey back to the halcyon days of 2012 when everything wasn't a bin fire. And in particular, the London 2012 <laughs> Games that were basically the best thing that ever happened, ever. The London 2012 Games would have been a pretty special time for you as you came away with two medals in the long jump and sprint events. Tell us, tell us about that wonderful time. Take us back there, Steph. I mean, in a word, it was awesome. I think it was the unexpectedness of it all that, that really caught me and definitely caught the whole country by surprise. So my, my journey into sport was quite unusual. I actually started athletics quite late and, and part of that was because... Um, well, my initial dream was to be a rugby player. I was in an accident when I was 15. And this was in 2000, you know, before anyone mm-hmm. really knew about the Paralympics or knew what parasport was. And I kind of accepted then that, you know, probably sport wasn't going to be for me. So, you know, people thought I was crazy when in 2008, I decided that, you know what, I'm going to give parasports a whirl and, you know, give up, um, not give up, but set aside my degrees in biochemistry. I wanted to be a surgeon. And people were just like, you're nuts. Like how they aren't disabled athletes. Like why on earth are you doing that? But I just kind of had this vision of what it could be. And I'm so glad I took that risk and at least explored and, and, and saw where it could go. But so you started, you took up parasports in 2008. And then four years later, 
you're competing at the Paralympics. It was a bit more than four years. So, so my accident was in 2000. And, and obviously, I, I came from quite a sporting background. You know, the accident was, it was quite rough on my body. Um, I was run over by a uh, motorboat and got caught in propellers. It just took a lot of time, you know, to, one, to heal. But then, obviously, you have to learn how to walk again mm. and, and then run. And then I started kind of dabbling back into into sport in around 2004, mostly just at a recreational level. And then um, 2008 was when I, I really got sort of getting serious about it and making decisions about my life and my career around my sport. I think you're right. The unexpectedness of how great those games were, I think, for the whole nation. It was a thing. I remember thinking they were going to be rubbish, like very, very British kind of negativity about it. And then actually they changed my life. So can you tell us a little bit about the anniversary games? When London did for... The, the Olympics and Paralympics in 2012, a big part of that bid was this idea of, of legacy and the fact that we were always going to, one, be left with a, a stadium that could host athletics events, but also as, as a reminder of, of what took place and leaving that legacy and that opportunity for future athletes and future generations, because it is such an unbelievably special thing to be an athlete at a home you know, Olympics and Paralympics. And so they just wanted to make sure that that momentum stayed. And so the anniversary games have been happening every year since then. So another thing that London 2012 is sort of quite famous for is raising the profile of disability sports. And things like the anniversary games obviously can help to continue that legacy, as you've, as you've just said. What do you think the trajectory has been like since 2012 in terms of disability sports? Um, I think so definitely since London 2012, um, you know, if you are a disabled athlete, there is no better country to be in than Great Britain. And that's definitely been the feeling from athletes around the world. You know, again, we saw it when London hosted the, the Parable Championships in 2017. I mean, there was an online campaign from uh, athletes, not even British athletes, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to have the World Championships hosted here in that stadium you know, for the foreseeable future, because the experience is so different as a para-athlete competing in Great Britain than in other countries. But I think as well, it, they're, they're just, there really isn't room for Great Britain to rest on those those laurels. And there definitely has been a bit of a feeling from fellow athletes that, you know, we're not, we're not pushing ahead anymore. We're not continuing to be world leaders and, and other countries are, are catching up. And again, while Great Britain sparked that and we can be really proud of that, uh, we still need to push harder if if we want uh, para sports to be, you know, not just something that was really cool for a moment to invest in, but to be this ongoing conversation about what it looks like to include everybody from all walks of society. How do we support this as sports fans? Yeah, well, I think the best thing is, is just to, you know, to go and watch it and invest in it. I think it's it's really, really hard to become a fan of something that, you know, you, you don't understand. So so part of it is until you get involved, you know, you just can't fully appreciate what it takes to do this at, at a high level. And then I think there might be a little bit of I don't know, maybe an intimidation factor when you start watching Parasport because people might think, well, if I don't have a disability, then you know maybe I can't really relate or, or understand. And okay, yeah, fine. Sometimes understanding a bit of the nuances about classification is is a little bit more challenging. But 
Actually, it is simple once you kind of get in in the swing of it. And I think what people find is that it almost sucks you in in a different way than what able-bodied sport does because it's just this incredible tale and display of, you know, the underdog shining through, you know, people that two decades ago you never would have even associated with words like strong and fast are suddenly excelling in this most unexpected way in sport on a world stage. And I think it, it inspires other people to think, well, hang on a second, maybe these limits I set for myself, maybe they don't exist. And why don't I just give it at least a try? Aside from the anniversary games, what else have you got coming up this year? There's the IPC World Power Championships coming up in Dubai. Are you- mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have our, so every year um, there, con- there usually is one main competition that you would peak for. And then still within the season, myself, I would probably compete between about six and eight times. But the big one this year, as you say, is the, the World Para-Athletics Championships in Dubai. And it's a bit unusual because it's in November, mm. uh, which is quite late. Typically, they, they would be in, in August or September, um, which does provide some challenges for next year, which is obviously the Paralympics in Tokyo yeah. in 2020. So we're having to be quite creative in our in our planning. I was having a little nose around on your Twitter, and I know that you are something of a cook as well. You've actually got something on the stove as we speak, um, <laughs> you said earlier. <laughs> so you were finalist on last year's Celebrity MasterChef, and you've got a project on the go at the moment, Warrior Bars. It was in February. I went with the Leprosy Mission UK to Nepal, and I was hosting a series of social media videos just to, to gain awareness um, about leprosy and just, you know, how the disease works and how frustrating it is because we know how to cure it. And it doesn't need to lead to lifelong disability. And it was really my, my first experience kind of in, in this, you know, world of development overseas. And, and it just really opened my eyes beyond this country and just, you know, what, what can we do? And it's just actually some of the things are so simple. And within that time, I, I came back and um, one of my friend's parents that lives, lo- um, my friend lives locally while his parents live in Tanzania. And they living community uh, there and um, they came across these two gentlemen who were amputees and they asked if I could help fundraise. Initially, you know, you kind of want to be like, oh, I don't know anything about fundraising. You know, they're so far, what can I do? And then I thought, no, actually, I am going to take responsibility for this and actually I can do something. And so I am basically doing an online bake sale for, um, they're called Warrior Bars and they are packed with 12 grams of protein and they are delicious. And um, it's been really fun and a really fun journey. And it's it's just been really cool seeing different people who are interested and, and supportive of it. And so I've, um, as of this weekend, I'm 25% of the way to my goal. And in the end, we're going to help these guys to buy two prosthetic legs from their local clinic, which was also important because that's the only way that it's going to be sustainable long term that they can go back to their local clinic and they'll know how to how to service them. And uh, it's actually it's really exciting and I've loved it. How can we support the project? So actually, for the moment, the actual bars are only available for delivery uh, within Loughborough, which, you know, initially when I started, I thought, right, I'm going to go global. I'm going to take over, you know, the world protein bar market. And then my wow. husband helpfully suggested... Stephanie, maybe you should just do it locally and see what your actual capacity is. <laughs> so, which is very sensible advice on his part, because um, obviously at the moment I'm just doing them, you know, out of my kitchen in between my um, practice sessions and my work. However, you can still support if you go online. Um, I've set up a GoFundMe page, and you can access the GoFundMe page either from my Instagram or from my my Twitter. 
and um, any support would be amazing and, and appreciated. So the anniversary games are this weekend and are tickets still available, mm-hmm. do you know? Tickets might still be available. I know they tend to go really quickly, so if you're thinking about it, definitely go for it sooner rather than later, but it's going to be an awesome, awesome weekend. of. of- and is it on TV? It will also be on TV, either BBC One or BBC Two. Steph, thank you yeah. so much for talking to me and best of luck. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Hello. I just noticed you going in your bag for something and could hear the jingle jangle of some change. Now then, if that change isn't being used for a, a cup of tea or coffee or to do a worthy cause, you could consider giving it to us. And you can do that by popping over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash standard issue. And any bunts you would like to throw our way is very gratefully received and helps us keep making content that champions women. Thanks very much. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Dystopia. Dunleavy, what vision of a future hell did we watch this week? This week we watched 1975's dystopian sports film, Rollerball. We did indeed. The very first dystopia I ever saw, so it's possibly responsible for my small-scale obsession with dystopian films. I saw it when I was about eight or nine. My mum used to work in a pub. So she was out a couple of evenings a week and my dad used to use that as an opportunity to watch films that my mum didn't want to watch. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they were appropriate for me and my sister to watch wasn't really a thought that he had. Is it also responsible for your love of polyester and massive lapels? Yeah, absolutely. And as we can all see now, my shirt being unbuttoned to the waist. <laughs> it's weird, it's weird. What an outfit collection we've got in here. <laughs> Once more Winnie the Pooh with a formal shoe. Hannah's got a massive, I don't know where she's got that hair from, but it's there, there's a medallion. It's an excellent tribute to James Caan. So in Rollable, when are we? 2018, so last year. Uncannily accurate. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was based on a short story that appeared in Esquire magazine. Oh, the Rollable murder. Indeed. Stars James Caan and Ralph Richardson, and lots of other people, but they are the two people who probably you might know. Can I also point out, that I thought I recognised Moon Pie, so I googled the actor, and the actor is called John Beck, and I thought, what have I seen him in before? Now, it turns out he's just got a generic 1970s yeah. face, but whilst I was searching to see what I might have seen him in, I came across the fact that he was once in an adult movie called Good Times with a Bad Girl. <laughs> <laughs> and that delighted me. Nice. And particularly because the front cover was just those two in bed, and she just had an adult movie on a placard across her tits. <laughs> In this version of 2018, everything's orange and only one font. Space bubbly. font. Space font, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the only one that survives. Because it's the future. Basically, countries aren't really a thing now. The world is a lot more global well, and Everyone run, went bankrupt. Yeah, run by corporations. Rollerball itself is like a mix of rugby and the Omnian. Yeah, I was thinking it's a bit velodromey, isn't yeah. it? Mm. It's a bit roller derby with death. Ro- I thought roller, roller derby and track cycling was where I was going yeah. with it. It's very much a contact sport, mm. I think, is probably the, the major point. Our hero, as such, is Jonathan E., who plays for Houston, which is the best club Houston, in the world. Houston, Houston, Do you think orange is the colour of Texas? I think Te- orange is the colour of the 1970s. The Texans, the, uh, the Houston NFL team, they're orange, I think. Oh, Fact, maybe then. fans. There you go. Maybe. Despite being Megan Rapino of his time, Jonathan E is asked to retire. It's not explained to him why he should, but he doesn't want to. 
and they try to force him into retirement by changing the rules of the game so it becomes more and more chaotic, more and more dangerous. Are we nearly there yet? Yes and no, I think. No in the idea that, that the whole point of Rollerball is that... It's bread and circuses, isn't it? It's about pacifying the mob. Yeah. But also, we later learn that the, the, the reason that, that Jonathan E is a problem for them is that he has become famous in his own right. And it's never clearly explained why they think that Rollerball will achieve its, uh, this aim, but the aim is apparently that Rollerball reduces the role of the individual. It's like they've never watched any sport ever. Exactly. <laughs> reduces the role of the individual and makes the mob believe in collectivism as opposed to individualism, which is absolutely nothing like what's happening now when we live in a society that talks endlessly about the individual as opposed to the community. What about technology? I mean, technology is shit in this, isn't oh, it? Oh, see, now I but, disagree. But I do think they have predicted the, the internet, internet yes. quite cleverly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, a really bad internet. Basically Ash Jeeves, but a drunk Ash Jeeves. <laughs> What's he called? Zero. Zero, yeah. yeah. Basically, Ash Jeeves was off his chops on coke. That's what <laughs> Zero is. No, don't know the answer. Sorry, guys. Declined. Yeah. Denied. <laughs> Everything's been digitised, except for the bit about the 13th century, yeah, they which lost they've that. lost entirely. Uh, so, yeah, I did feel like that was quite close. Again, they've got TVs in volume rather than in size. They have bigger ones as well, <clears> though. Which yeah. is, a, is a sort of upgrade, but you're right. They also have little ones surrounding yeah. the big ones wide. Like rumbelows. Did, yeah. did they just think the future meant that people wanted to know what it was like to be a fly? Yeah. I just want to see everything like the eyes of a fly. Yeah. But you can just erase something immediately. That's, that's quite a good technological thing. I quite like that. Yeah, they don't seem to use cars. They seem to use helicopters. Helicopters, yeah. Well, they are, are very rich, like flying cars. <laughs> yeah. Why not? They're very cost-effective. Yeah. As... Their sort of concept of spoiled sports stars, they seem to be quite on the nose with that. Mm. I mean, they saw all this talk of privilege cards and luxury centres and flying around. And Did that not exist in the 70s, though, already? Like superstar sports stars? Obviously not in the same way it does now, because people are more accessible via the internet and whatever and blah, blah, blah. But there must have been, like megastar athletes in the 70s. Yeah, like Muhammad Ali and, exactly. uh, and O.J. Simpson. Well, that works out well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was the same as it is now. You get paid, obviously, a considerable amount more now than you would have done then. But Exactly, yeah. and more people will be paid at that rate. Although Muhammad Ali's status did not prevent him getting drafted yeah. for Vietnam, did it? No. He didn't have a privilege card in that sense. That might have been something to do with his race. Yeah, look at Frankie Dottorio, still getting the <laughs> standard class. Absolutely. That horse fella. Also, there is a very futuristic gun that just says fire to things. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that future. It's just a flamethrower that looks like a gun. Let's talk about the birds. Let's talk about the women. And I'm oh calling the birds God. for a reason because they are the decoration. Yeah, well, you tell me what you think, Mick. I thought it was quite soul and green. They yeah, were there, very and much you so. got given a woman to do your bidding. Mm. They were decorative. They were dressed like sexy space maidens mm. and didn't have much to do apart from swoon at someone they couldn't have and get pissed on men's knees. Yeah, and wear cloaks. Still in my More life. Capes. Dottie Winter will be pleased. Capes are clearly coming back. In well, the future. No, they were back last year. They were back last year. Shit, Again, they were quite back last year. Were there they? was a lot of capes at various Oscar awards. Really? So Again? Maybe, come on, Rollerball. Weren't capes quite big in the 70s? So my, they haven't tried very hard no, here, No, 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 it's always the same with dystopia. You can tell when it's made because it takes that fashion. 
It's very seventies. Mm. There's yeah. no two ways about it. And those white suits with the with the cowboy hats, they're going away clothes or whatever, are the most seventies things that have the ever existed. The lapels that you're yeah. wearing Seriously. for us right now, Hannah. Seriously, yeah. the amount of polyester. We're just watching it. Balloons appear <laughs> stuck to my walls. <laughs> Crazy, static. Yeah, but it's important to point out that in this world, allegedly, all of mankind's problems have been solved. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. I love the way they just throw that in. You're like, but I maybe, I don't think they have been, considering how women are treated. But that's not really a problem for men, is it, no. Hannah? Come on now. No. Oh, sorry, yes, mankind's yeah. problems there have been go. solved. Yeah, good point. Women are very much objects, and that one of Jonathan E.'s big beefs with the corporation is that because he isn't an executive... They just took his wife off him because a, an executive wanted her and just gave her to this other bloke. Yeah. What about the politics? Yeah, well, I mean, politics doesn't really exist. And I think this probably leads me to its Cassandra moment, which is that the most powerful things in 2018, according to Rollable, aren't governments, they're companies. And that's really, really pretty close to the mark Mm -hmm. when you consider that, for example, Amazon has been able to avoid tax by basically threatening governments to pull out. When you consider that Apple is actually wealthier than America. Yeah, companies are big and they can make wild threats and governments can do fuck all about it. And the interesting thing is, this film was absolutely hammered when it came out for being like, you know, oh, well, that doesn't tell us anything. That's not what the world's like. And I think, I don't think you're quite supposed to judge dystopian films on what they say about the time that they were made. They inevitably say something about the time that they were made, but they also have this idea of if we continue down this path, what is the ultimate end point of it? Mm. It's very much about consumerism being the way to comfort and comfort in itself being seen as freedom rather than liberty being seen as freedom. So you can be under all of these rules and be totally the, the corporations are the puppeteers. But, you know, if you've got your privilege cards and you're wealthy, then you're kind of free because you can buy anything. And that's what his wife says to him. And he's like, no, that's not, it's not the same as freedom. I think Nixon, a few years later in 1979, did a speech about how consumerism was taking over the role of like the family and stuff and everyone needed to look more towards community rather mm. than shopping whereas those luxury centres and privilege cards is very much putting the onus on happiness, for happiness, on purchase power. It's, yeah, and it's also interesting because, you know, that whole hashtag punch a Nazi. And there's, a, there's, there's kind of a celebration of violence now in if you look at people like oh, sorry, Antifa and groups like that, that actually are like, hey, you know, let's, let's smash stuff up, let's, let's punch people, let's do that. There is kind of a glorification of violence from people who then compare themselves to things like the civil rights movement, in which not everybody was nonviolent. I mean, obviously, the Black Panthers and Malcolm X, they had their ideas. They didn't marry up with the ideas of Martin Luther King. However, the most famous, the most well-respected, the most thought of were the people who actually allowed themselves to be punched in the face. So I think there's something about the bloodlust in rollerball that's interesting because I think it says something a little bit about how it doesn't take much for people to start 
jeering when they're in a crowd and being on Twitter now is being in a crowd, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. I think that that bloodlust and that violence as a sport, which is exactly what it is, that, that rollerball is an incredibly violent sport, being made almost a religious experience. So when it starts, it's got a very famous bit of classical music that I can't remember the name of. And it very much is, it's the setting up of the rollerball rink, <laughs> the rollerball stadium. And it's all done to this incredibly religious, churchy music because they're setting the scene for this is now what the people see as yeah. their religion. This is what keeps them under control yeah. for the corporations. Yeah, it's interesting as well because you can watch for about five minutes before you realise that rollerballs is violent. It starts off being quite, hey, you know, it's just some guys skating around. And then suddenly it's like, oh, hang on, they've got studs on their gloves. And hang on, they're like punching each other. And Hang on, right. that motorbike's on fire. And it does, I think as well, the, the way the film does it is very clever in that the first rollerball game is nowhere near as violent as the second rollerball game, which is nowhere near as violent as the third rollerball game. And it's all about the corporations changing the rules, but also lulling the audience, the viewer, into a false sense of security. Like, oh, this game's quite fun. I can see why people, oh, fuck, there is actually a man on fire. That's yeah. bad. Even I know that's bad, despite the rest of the game being quite fun. Until it is just yeah. that sort of death race for James Kahn's character. Yeah. So what are you giving it Arnie-wise? How many Arnies is it getting? As in, is it a good film? Yeah. I'm going to say three. And a lot of that is down to the fact that I'm quite fond of it. Because, like, like I say, it's a film that made me think that films like this were interesting. Mm. It's a very weird film. Yeah. It was a very weird watch. I wasn't sure what my emotions were supposed to be. James Caan is really, really passive in it. And I think that's part of the strangeness about it. I think he's the least passive character in it. He fights the corporation. He does. He doesn't seem to get angry. He doesn't see, apart from like all of the stuff that obviously he does at work, you know, obviously that's angry and violent, but doesn't say a huge amount. And actually it's interesting because they kind of portray him like he's actually a bit stupid. Well, I thought he was quite well cast as an athlete. Not well cast, but well sketched as an athlete. Yeah. Because yeah, they're not going to be the bright, always going to be the brightest pennies. If he was the brightest penny, he'd probably be in the corporation. He's had he? a lot of knocks to the head. Yeah, he has. And what about, yeah, get to the chop bar. Yeah, I think it's pretty close. I think it's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. Like a four? Yeah, I would say like a four. Corporations are huge. The internet exists. Women still get treated like shit by sports people. I mean, And people in general. (laughs) Yeah. Seems quite close to the mark for me. And when you guys come to my house later, you'll see that I've got a bank of tiny televisions. (laughs) (laughs) What are we going to watch next time? One of our loyal listeners... Emma Eve has repeatedly asked me to watch Equilibrium. And so I think I might do that. I don't know what that is. Neither do I, except it has Christian Bale in it. So it's either he's either going to be very, very, very thin (laughs) or very, very, very angry or very, very, very whispery. Standard issue for all women.